Dear sisters and brothers, I have good news. Wait for it. Christ is risen. This is the day we've been awaiting, the day we've longed for, the day that changes everything, the day that the Lord has made, the day when God's Spirit entered the tomb and whispered words to the broken body lying there, Jesus, come out, and an angel or maybe two helped Jesus to sit up. They gently removed the grave clothes, and Jesus removed the cloth that covered his face, and he folded it ever so neatly. He laid it aside. Then Jesus stood up. Then Jesus walked out of the tomb. Then Jesus went somewhere warm and quiet and soothing, perhaps into God's very own arms, and waited there till morning, until morning when the women came. And sure enough, there they came. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the other Mary, Mary of Bethany, we don't know. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, it is. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And then things got interesting. First an earthquake, then an angel of the Lord. Now, according to Matthew, the angel caused the earthquake, the original dramatic entrance. The angel rolled the stone away from the opening of the tomb. The angel rolled the stone away and then sat on it. The angel sat on it. The stone that had blocked the entrance to the tomb, the angel sat on the stone. Now, maybe the angel did so in order to calm the witnesses to his arrival. If so, it didn't work. Maybe it was all that lightning and clothes as bright as snow thing, or the earthquake, or rolling away the stone, or sitting on it. I mean, what did that look like anyway? Did the angel flip the stone onto its side and casually sit down? Or did the angel roll it away and then calmly leap onto it like a cat hopping onto a fence? It's these little details that fascinate me. Maybe too much, but I think they're there not simply because they're true or because that's what was reported to Matthew, but also because they give us pause. They make us stop a minute and scratch our heads and ask, now what is that about? What did that look like? Why did the angel sit down? Well, perhaps as I suggested earlier, the angel sat down in order to reduce the intimidation factor by a notch or two a sitting angel all decked out in snow and lightning being less terrifying than a standing angel dressed the same way. Perhaps the angel wanted to calm the spirits of the witnesses. And there were witnesses, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary we've already met, and the guards. Only in Matthew's gospel do we meet the guards, and they seem a hapless bunch. Now, I think it's safe to say that serving cemetery duty was not the most plumb position for a Roman soldier. Well, with all the crowds in Jerusalem for the holidays, there would have been a heavier than normal military presence in town. And that heavier military presence would have served as fair warning to any troublemakers that rowdyism would not be tolerated. One can imagine the best and brightest of the soldiers being placed in the hot spots, those parts of the city where trouble might break out the kind of locations calling for smart soldiers, loyal soldiers, soldiers capable of knowing when to act and when to stand back a bit. Cool heads, in other words, carrying swords. That's what the best and brightest of the soldiers would have been doing that weekend in Jerusalem. But our boys, they were on cemetery duty. 
and their assignment was to make sure that none of Jesus' disciples snuck into the tomb and stole his body. Now, according to Matthew, this assignment was given by Pilate himself upon request from the chief priests. They remembered, you see, that prediction that Jesus made about rising from the dead in three days. And like every good politician then and since, they were experienced conspirators and so imagined everybody else conspiring against them. So they asked Pilate for help in securing the tomb just long enough to prevent any body-snatching disciples from claiming that the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead. So Pilate offered the chief priests some soldiers and told them to go and make the tomb as secure as you can. Now, that's not the most confident command ever given. Not, hold that tomb, boys, at all costs. Not, the empire's finest will get the job done. Not, no one can get past our tough guys. Just, Go and make the tomb as secure as you can, which contributes to my sense that the guards on tomb duty may not have been the crack troops we imagine Roman soldiers to be. I could be wrong, of course. Uh, maybe these were the best Rome had to offer, but that make it as secure as you can, well, that's just the beginning because when the earthquake comes and the angel alights all lit up and rolls away the stone and flips it in the air like a coin and then sits on it, our boys fall flat on their faces. They became like dead men, Matthew says. They fainted. They passed out, keeled over, hit the dirt, literally, face in the dust, limp as rag dolls they were. Oh, dear. Now, if it seems like I'm playing this for laughs a little bit, um, it's because I am. And here again, I take my cue from Matthew because there's a big-time role reversal going on here. Strong Roman soldiers, symbol of first century masculine power and domination, pass out in front of the angel. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, well, they're still standing, afraid maybe, but still standing. And that's comedy, folks. At least I think that's how Matthew's first audience would have read it. Not comedy as in laugh out loud, but comedy as in an unexpected and even ironic turn, an upside-down response, a reversal. In a culture where Roman soldiers symbolized all that was masculine, strong, and powerful, and in control, and where women symbolized weakness and neediness and were under the rule of men, Matthew flips the tables in a way that's both shocking and, to my mind, hilarious. Rome quakes at the coming of the angel. Jesus' female friends stand there and await the good news. That's beautiful beautiful. Well, with the Roman soldiers face down in the dirt, the angel starts talking to the only conscious witnesses left, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. Now, take another look at the scene. Roman soldiers lying in the dust. Two women receiving the good news of resurrection. And suddenly what seems funny takes a more serious turn because now we see that the resurrection marks the end of human empires. 
for all of their power, for all of their military and economic might, for all of their pretensions of grandeur and even divinity, empires fall on their faces in the presence of the risen Jesus. The empire cannot hear the good news because it terrifies it. The empire cannot hear the good news because it doesn't compute. The good news is a foreign language to the empire, being the language of forgiveness and reconciliation, redemption, salvation, and the end of death's dominion over this world and the next. The resurrection marks an end to fear, which is one of the empire's primary tools for keeping the so-called peace and for keeping everybody safely in their assigned seats. And that message of no more fear, ironically, makes the empire afraid. It cuts the props out from under the empire's feet and leaves it lying in the dust, overcome for the first time by a power beyond the empire's imagining. What happened there at the tomb was bad news for the empire. It revealed the fact that the emperor really was wearing no clothes. And it revealed, too, that whatever redemption awaited the empire would come at great cost in the laying down of weapons and of any pretensions to greatness and a humbling before God like that of those poor guards watching the tomb. But the women, our sisters in Christ, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Okay, so angels are scary even for disciples, but fear could also be read as wonder, awe, amazement. So perhaps not fear like that the guards experience, more like the fear that any sensible person would fear, feel when confronted by an angel, the wonder of witnessing something altogether holy and pure, the awe felt in the presence of God, an awe that inspires, that enlivens, and that made Mary Magdalene and the other Mary take off running with all joy, running off to tell their friends what they'd seen at the tomb. And lo and behold, who should come springing out of the bushes to startle them along the way than Jesus himself? Now, forgive me for taking liberties, but I imagine Jesus sporting a wide grin, all bright teeth and upturned lips and eyes ablaze with good humor, jumping into the path and startling the socks off of his dear sisters, a, a good-spirited prank, a, a bit of hijinks, a well-earned opportunity to play around a little bit with his dear friends like Robin Hood swinging on a rope and then standing all akimbo on the branch of a tree and saying, Welcome to Sherwood. I imagine the newly risen Savior bounding onto the path and saying, Greetings. And this time the sisters fell on their faces. They ran to Jesus and they threw themselves at his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus spoke to them and said, Go tell his brothers, his male disciples, to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now we'll let our sisters get on with it while we take one last look at those poor hapless guards of the tomb. They had, as it were, some serious explaining to do. I mean, all they needed to do was keep a dead guy in the grave. I mean, how hard can that be? All they had to do was guard the tomb from a bunch of layabouts and messianic nuts. They had all of Rome at their back, but it was all for naught. Oh, yeah. They had some explaining to do. And so they went back to town to tell the chief priest what happened at the tomb. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the response of the chief priests and elders to be just a little bit odd. These were the political functionaries of their day, the minions of Rome, people who one would think had 
long since handed over their souls to the empire. That's probably too harsh. People are complicated. Maybe they saw their faithful service to Rome as part of God's plan, a righteous responsibility that served the people well, oh, and coincidentally lined their pockets. But, but the last thing I would expect from such hard-nosed politicians would be anything resembling belief in the soldier's story. Yet they don't even question or challenge what the guards have to say, unbelievable as it may have been. Instead, they take the route favored by politicians ever since they propose a cover-up. They pay the soldiers a hefty amount of hush money. They tell them exactly what to say if they're questioned. They even offer the soldiers protection, just in case Pilate figures out that something went wrong in the garden. The soldiers took the money and did what they were told, and according to Matthew, the cover-up still holds. It's still rumored that the disciples came and stole the body away. And so the empire carried on as empires do, burying the truth behind a wall of lies. Plausible lies, of course. Spin was not invented in the 1990s. It's likely that what prompted Matthew to include the tale of the guards, the chief priests, and the elders was a dispute between his congregation and the local synagogue. His folks were proclaiming resurrection. The synagogue was offering a more reasonable explanation for what happened, though one that also coincidentally cast doubt on the legitimacy of Matthew's community. But whatever Matthew's reasons for including the guards in his rendition of the resurrection, it reveals the way of empires. Empires resist any version of history which calls their magnificence into question. Empires bend the facts or dismiss them entirely in order to maintain the illusion of their own omnipotence. That's what empires do. And even an event as outlandish and beyond human experiences, raising Jesus from the dead could not be permitted to stand in the way of the empires controlling the story. And meanwhile, two women ran off to tell their friends about what they'd seen, who they'd seen early that morning at the now empty tomb of their friend and teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Two sets of witnesses to the resurrection and two radically different responses. Put simply, those responses are resist and defend and receive and proclaim. First, let's consider the response of resistance and defense as exemplified by the chief priests and elders. Theirs was a resistance founded on a kind of idolatry, a, a confidence in human power, an acceptance of the empire's version of human history. Whether they were knowingly serving two masters or believed themselves to be wise leaders doing right by their people, the chief priests and elders, it seems, had accepted the reality of Roman rule, which seems to have made it impossible for them to do anything with the guards' reports but to cover them up and make them go away. And really, who can blame them? They knew better than anyone just how strong Rome was and just how ruthless Roman justice could be. Still... As Matthew presents the case against them, it seems as though they'd exchange one narrative for another, one way of understanding the world and human history for another. The narrative of God's intention to save the people from human sin and liberate them from their oppressors was exchanged for the narrative of Roman invincibility and the empire's ability to keep the peace and make the prosperous even more so. We can't know for sure all that lay behind the chief priests and elders' efforts to cover up the events at the tomb, but... We're all too familiar with church and political leaders who find a blend of religion and nationalism to be a heady cocktail, one that brings a temporary rush of power but ends 
as we all know, an idolatry, an idolatry that makes what should be good news sound like bad news, news that must be denied, resisted, and defended against. Now let's look at the response of receiving and proclaiming as exemplified by Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Theirs was a response that started far from the centers of power and domination among a people marginalized and oppressed. A response that began in a relationship with a young rabbi, Jesus Christ. They'd walked with him. They talked with him. They gave their hearts to Jesus and received his heart in turn. They witnessed his acts of compassion and healing. They heard him preach and teach in ways which lifted their hearts. And over time, the two Marys found their way toward recognizing in Jesus the very Spirit of God, more than a prophet, more than a miracle worker, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is this history, this experience, this ever-growing relationship with Jesus of Nazareth that provided the place for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to stand when faced with a brighter-than-bright angel, a firm place where they could stand without falling, a history that took place on the margins among people who had nothing to gain by keeping the empire satisfied and in place, a people whose eyes looked past Rome and still sought a savior from God. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary knew Jesus. They loved Jesus. They wanted to believe that what he had promised was true and had staked their lives on that sometimes frail belief. And so they stood there in front of that angel and they learned what until that moment they'd only hoped that the promise was true. And when they met Jesus on the way back to town, they knew it again. And, and so they ran even more quickly to start telling their friends the story of an earthquake and an angel and an empty tomb and a risen Savior. Two responses to the same event. Some heard tell of an earthquake and an angel and an empty tomb, and they did their best to cover it up, to deny it, and so keep the machinery of empire running along smoothly. And others witnessed that same earthquake and that same angel and that same empty tomb and received it gladly and so met Jesus on the way home and so received a story so powerful they could barely wait to start telling it. Two responses, resistance and defense, receiving and proclamation. Each of us here this morning has witnessed these same events. We've all heard the same story. And the question for us is, as it's always been, how will we respond? Will we see in these events an obstacle to business as usual? Will we hear in this version of history something that will interfere with the status quo? Will we turn away from it or conspire against it or in some other way collude with the empires of this world to keep the machinery running? Or will we find our hearts filled with joy as we hear the good news of an empty tomb and a risen friend. But we go hightailing it off to tell our friends that the one we love so well is alive again. But we find Jesus himself jumping out of the bushes to surprise us and then throw ourselves at his feet in worship. Will we receive what we have seen and what we have heard and proclaim it even at the risk of countering the imperial version of events? That's the invitation before us this morning, sisters and brothers. It's an invitation to receive and proclaim the good news of resurrection and to do so not merely in an intellectual or apologetic sense as in the rigid defending of a doctrine. The, the right doctrine of the resurrection is not what made Mary, Mary's heart leap for joy. It's not what made the other Mary hike up her skirts and, 
and run to tell her friends. And the invitation is to something so much more than an intellectual assent or defense of a certain version of the story. It's instead an invitation to hear in the angel's announcement something of God's own voice. To hear in the angel's words something larger than we are, something that energizes us, that enlivens us, that fills us with a joy we can hardly contain. To hear an invitation to an even deeper relationship with Jesus, a deeper love for Jesus, for a more faithful companionship with Jesus. Good news that issues in proclamation, a proclamation that begins and ends with stories of our experiences with Jesus. From that first moment when we encountered him, perhaps while he was preaching or maybe feeding the multitude, all the way through Good Friday and, and then to this place today, a place full of light and shaking and wonder and worship. Proclamation that is graceful because it's full of grace, God's grace made known to us in Jesus Christ. Proclamation that's not limited to words or stories, but that includes acts of charity and compassion, acts of justice and peacemaking, acts of mercy and generosity and kindness and love. And every last one of them a response to what we saw and heard at the empty tomb. Sisters and brothers, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. This is what we have seen and heard today. Christ is risen. The invitation has been given, the invitation to receive that good news and then proclaim it and to do all, do both with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength. Christ is risen. Christ is risen the invitation has been given. So, how will we respond? Let's pray. Holy One, we have heard the good news of resurrection and we hear your invitation to receive that good news and to share it with everyone we meet. Give us the grace we need to do just that. The grace to stand in the presence of angels and feel our hearts overwhelmed by wonder. The grace we need to then run and tell our sisters and brothers the story of what we witness with our very own eyes. That Christ is risen from the dead that empires are fallen, that Jesus is alive. Grant us strength through your Holy Spirit to accept your invitation. Fill our hearts with joy, for Christ is risen, and it is in the risen one's name that we do pray. Amen.